Today's scripture comes from Luke chapter 6, verses 27 to 35. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures. Hello, my name is Aaron, and I'm one of the pastors here at Exilic, and I want to welcome you to our church today, uh, especially if it's your first time here. And if you're joining us for the first time, a few weeks ago, we embarked on a new series called The Upside Down Life. And the reason why we're doing this series and the reason why it's called The Upside Down Life is because when you take a look at the teachings of Jesus, it seems as though what he is saying is this, that the key to having a flourishing life is by living a counterintuitive life. So in other words, the way up is the way down. The way to uh, win in life is by losing your life. Um, The song that we just sung uh, a few moments ago, it says, if more of you means less of me. Uh, These are all counterintuitive ways of thinking. And today we're going to be looking at perhaps what is the most counterintuitive thing of all, and that is loving your enemies. Now... I was thinking about this passage all week, and I was thinking about it because I have to have some level of integrity while I'm up here. And I was thinking about it, and I thought to myself, God, is this even possible? Is it even possible to realistically love my enemies? It sounds good in theory, but practically speaking, on a day-to-day level, is this, even, is this even possible or not? I mean, and the reason why I thought that way is because it's hard enough loving people you slightly dislike. It's hard enough loving people that annoy you, irritate you. It's hard enough loving people you don't jive with. It's hard enough loving people you just don't see eye to eye with. You say tomato, they say tomato. It's hard enough loving your parents sometimes that are your own flesh and blood because you're bitter and resentful to them for the way that they raised you. It's hard enough loving my coworkers and boss that I see every Monday through Friday that I that I work with because they're hypercritical to me. It's hard enough loving my own roommate because they're so messy and I have to nag them for rent every single month. It's hard enough loving people like this. And now here is Jesus saying, you need to go a step further and you actually have to love your enemies. So is this even possible or not? Is this realistic? Well, there's an Orthodox Jewish rabbi named Rabbi Shmuley Botiak. And when he took a look at Jesus' teachings about loving your enemies, not only did he say that it's impossible, uh, but it's evil. And I want to read this quote to you on the first page of your bulletin. 
could God really be so unreasonable? Could Jesus be so cruel as to ask me to love baby killers? And would such a God be moral if he did? Could I pray to a God who loves terrorists? Could I find comfort in him knowing that he offers them comfort as well? No. Such a God would be my enemy. He would abide in Hades rather than heaven. And I would be damned before I would worship him. I will accept an eternity in purgatory rather than a moment of celestial bliss shared with these beasts. So again, the question remains, should we love our enemies or not? Well, there was a very famous sermon that Martin Luther King Jr. gave in 1957 called Loving Your Enemies. And I read through this entire sermon and there's a part of me that just wishes I could just read the sermon to you because it's so much better than what you're about to hear in the next 30 minutes or so. But I do, I do want to read you an excerpt from that sermon. It's not in your bulletin, um, so you're going to have to tune your antennas up for a moment and listen to why MLK says it is important for us to love our enemies. And this is what he says. Many persons have argued that this is an extremely difficult command Many would go as far as to say that it just isn't possible to move out into the actual practice of this glorious command. They would go on to say that this is just an additional proof that Jesus was an impractical idealist who never quite came down to earth. So the arguments abound, but far from being an impractical idealist, Jesus has become the practical realist. The words of this text glitter in our eyes with a new sense of urgency. This command is an absolute necessity for the survival of our civilization. Yes, it is love that will save our world and our civilization, love even for our enemies. That is why we must love. And I would add that not only will loving our enemies save our civilization and our world, but loving our enemies will save you and your relationships. So let me give us an example of why. Uh, the late R.C. Sproul, who passed away just a couple months ago, uh, tells this true story of a husband and wife who wanted to get a divorce. And so the husband goes to see a counselor, and so the counselor does the typical preliminary questions. Was there any adultery? Um, um, did anyone abuse the other person or anything like that? Was there uh, an act of desertion of, of, of any nature? And so the husband says, no, no, it's nothing like that. And so, so the counselor says, then why do you want to get a divorce with your wife? And, uh, and so the husband says, I just don't love her anymore. Um, I just don't want to be with her. And so the counselor says to him, well, unfortunately, the Bible says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So the counselor says, not only are you supposed to love your wife, but you're supposed to be willing to die for her, just as Christ was willing to die for the church. And so the husband says, I get that. I've heard that before, but you don't understand. I can't stand the sight of her anymore. I don't even want to live under the same roof as her anymore. So the counselor says, it's that bad? And he says, yes. I can't stand her anymore. I, I, I murder her every day with my thoughts. And so, so the counselor says, okay, so let's, why don't we try this? Let's try this trial, temporary trial of separation uh, where you move next door because I know that the apartment next to you is vacant. And so the husband says, well, 
what good is that going to do? I mean, we're still going to bump into each other and things like that. And so the counselor says, well, the Bible also says, love your neighbor. And at that point, she would literally be your neighbor. And so the, the husband says, ha, 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 very funny. And so the counselor says, okay, so, so what you're telling me is that you don't love your wife anymore. And so, and so the husband says, yes, I actually hate her. And he says, I, I just can't, I can't do this anymore with her. And so the counselor says, it's almost like you guys are enemies. And the husband says, yes, we're enemies. We're, we're at enmity with one another. And so the counselor opens up the Bible again, and he says, unfortunately, it says in the Bible that you must also love your enemies. Not only are we called to love our wives, love our neighbors, but we are also called to love our enemies. If there is one primary ethic in the Christian life, it is love, love, love. Now, here's the question. How do we do that? What does it look like? And so if you take a look at the first few verses with me, verses 27 to 31, Jesus says, but to those of you who are listening, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Now, in the, in the Greek, there are several different ways of defining love. Greeks had as many definitions for love as Eskimos have for snow. So in Greek, there were several different ways to define love. For example, phileo love is brotherly love. The city of Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. So phileo love. Eros love, erotic or sexual love is another kind of love. So there are many different kinds of love. So what kind of love is Jesus using here when he says love your enemies? And it is the very famous word agape love. And agape simply means a unconditional indiscriminate type of love. That is the type of love we are called to have for one another, and yes, even those we strongly oppose. Now, here's a question. What does agape love look like? Jesus lists at least five examples of what agape love looks like. He says, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you, Someone slaps you on the cheek, turn the other cheek. And if someone takes your coat, give your shirt as well. And if you take a look at the five examples that are listed in verses 27 to 31, what are they? They are all actions, not feelings. And so when you think about what agape love is, it has less to do with warm, fuzzy feelings and more to do with actions. It has less to do with it being a, ver uh, a noun and more to do with it being a verb. Now, why is this so important? Well, one of the things that we talk about ad nauseum in our pre-engagement counseling and our premarital counseling is that actions of love lead to feelings of love. Now, why is that so important? It's important because oftentimes we feel like we need to feel a certain way first in order to act lovingly to that person. But what this passage is saying is that actions of love lead to feelings of love. If you wait to have feelings of love before you act lovingly, you may never act lovingly. But if you want to feel lovingly, the best way of doing that 
is first and foremost by acting uh, lovingly first, and then the feelings will come. So let's dissect one of these. I'm not going to take a look at all five, but I want to take a look at the most popular example that Jesus gives, and that is turning the other cheek. Now, what, what does he mean here? Well, imagine uh, with me for a moment, someone is standing in front of you, and they insult you, and so you want to slap them on the cheek. Now, Luke doesn't talk about what, which cheek is slapped, but Matthew does. And Matthew, Jesus says, imagine someone slaps you on the right cheek. So, so let's say you want to slap someone else, okay, and you're right-handed. How would you slap them on the right cheek? Well, it would be kind of awkward using your left hand, wouldn't it? It'd be almost easier to use the back of your right hand and to slap them on the right cheek. Now, if someone were to slap you like this across your right cheek, that's insulting, isn't it? It's far more insulting than someone slapping you with their left hand, and that's the point. It was just as insulting in the first century world. And the point that Jesus is making is, is this. If someone insults you or mistreats you, turn the other cheek. Now, what Jesus is not condoning, he is not condoning getting abused, being a doormat for people to walk over. He is not saying, Don't, do not pursue justice. He's not saying that. But what he is saying here is do not pursue retaliation. Do not pursue revenge. And I'll give you an example why Jesus is emphasizing this so much. In the Old Testament, there was something called the Mosaic Law. And in the Mosaic Law, there was something that we refer to in Latin as the lex talionis. Lex means law. Talionis means retaliation. So the law of retaliation. The purpose of the lex talionis in the Mosaic law was to promote justice and to end injustice. And so lex the, the principle of lex, lex talionis is that the punishment should always fit the crime. So in other words, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Now, at a magistrate level, that works. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, the punishment should fit the crime. The problem that started happening with the Israelites is that they started applying the lex talionis principle, not only in the big injustices in life, but also in the small injustices in life. You're going to gossip about me? I'm going to gossip about you then. You're going to criticize me? I'm going to criticize you then, and even harsher, eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Now, the problem with that, the problem with that is that if we're always doing an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, and even the smaller injustices in life, as someone once said, an eye for an eye will leave the whole world blind. The cycle of hatred and vengeance will never stop. This is the reason why MLK said someone has to be strong enough, someone has to be mature enough to put an end to the cycle of violence. Because if the law of retaliation is continually one of the ways that we live our lives, what inevitably happens is that we're going to seek payment through revenge. And what happens when you see payment through revenge, the hate that you have for the other person doesn't only travel to them, but the hate that you have for the other person, it travels to you. It infects you. It affects you. And so what Jesus is saying here is that the way that we act lovingly, the way to agape love is through our actions. But what he's also saying here is this, if we don't act lovingly to one another, it will most importantly infect us. And it will, it, will, it will affect the way that we interact with ourselves and with other people. C.S. Lewis was alive during the Holocaust. And one of the things that C.S. Lewis said 
is that first the Germans killed the Jews because they hated them, and then they hated the Jews because they killed them. First they killed the Jews because they hated them, and then they hated them because they killed them. See, the law of hatred works the same way as the law of love. Actions of hatred also lead to feelings of hatred, and feelings of hatred also lead to actions of hatred as well. It goes both ways. And when hate begets hate, it inevitably results in bitterness, which all of us are very familiar with. And you know what bitterness is? Bitterness is when you turn your hurt into hate. Because this person hurt me, my, my parents, my, my former boyfriend or girlfriend, because they hurt me, I hate them. It's when you turn your hurt into hate, and what ends up resulting is bitterness. And you know what bitterness is? Bitterness is drinking poison, expecting the other person to die. Meanwhile, your internal organs are burning up with acid. When, we, when we're hateful and resentful toward other people, you're going to be the one that is burning up inside with acid. And so this is so important for us to make sure that we are in a healthy place. And so I want to read us a, another quote from MLK on the first page of your bulletin. And this is what he says happens to us when we hate. MLK says, returning hate for hate multiplies hate, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Hate multiplies hate. Violence multiplies violence. And toughness multiplies toughness in a descending spiral of destruction for everybody. Hate distorts the personality of the hater. Begin hating somebody and you will begin to do irrational things. You can't see straight when you hate. It distorts. Hate at any point is a cancer that gnaws away the very vital center of your life and your existence. Jesus said love because hate destroys the hater as well as the hated. Nelson Mandela once said, as I walked through the door and to the gate that led to my freedom, I knew that if I did not leave behind my hatred and anger, I would still be in prison. Mandela knew that the only way to liberate him from his hatred and anger that he felt was by forgiving other people. Forgiving people is the only way to liberate the animosity that you feel towards other people. And you know why this is so important? Uh, one professor I know named Dr. Gross, he once said that the essence of discipleship is never letting anything get between you and Jesus. But you know what often gets between us and Jesus? Anger, bitterness, hatred. But a true follower of Jesus, and, it, and the essence of what discipleship is, is never letting anything get between you and him. So we took a look at what agape love is. It is more action-oriented than feeling-oriented. It's more of a verb than a noun. We looked at what hatred can do to our own souls and corrode our own hearts. But there is another reason why we should love our enemies. And if you take a look with me at the last verse, verse 35 says this, but love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get back anything. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because He is kind to the ungrateful, and He is kind to the wicked. Why should we act lovingly towards those that do not love us? 
because this is the way God acts towards those that are unlovely. We need to be this way and mirror God because he's like this. Now, if you think about evolution for a moment, evolution would never say, love your enemies. If anything, evolution would say, destroy your enemies, survival of the fittest. You need to crush them before they crush you. How could you possibly live in a world where you love your enemies? You could not. You could never survive. Vladimir Solovyov is a Russian philosopher and a theologian, and he once satirically said, man descended from apes, therefore let us love one another. Why is it that we as Christians, why is it that we should love one another liberally, even, even to the extent of our enemies? The reason why we love one another is not because we've descended from apes. It's not because of evolution. The reason why we love one another, even at the cost of our own emotions and our own pride and our own dignity, is because that is the way God is. And because God is that way, we must be as well. So let me give you an example of how God is this way via one of the most popular verses in the Bible, John 3.16, and yet perhaps one of the most misunderstood. Because in John 3.16, it says, For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only Son. Now, when we hear the word world, we think of bigness. For God so loved all these people, he gave his one and only Son. But follow that logic for a moment. Why would God give his one and only Son for all of these people? So when you, take a, when you do a word study on the word world in the Gospel of John, as well as through, throughout the rest of the New Testament, it has less to do with the bigness of the world and more to do with the badness of the world, which is why Paul says, do not conform to the patterns of this world. Do not be of the world. Uh, even though you're in the world, do not be of the world. Do not be worldly. And so when you take a, a, do a word study on the word world, it has more of a pejorative uh, context behind it. So it's not talking about the bigness of the world, but it's talking about the badness of the world. Now, back to John 3.16. For God so loved this bad world, he gave his one and only son. Doesn't that make so much more sense now? Because God loved the unlovable, even this bad world, including you and me. That's the reason why we ought to be loving towards people that are bad as well. Because Jesus is like this, we ought to be like this as well. Now, Jesus, God could have applied, why does God love us? He could have applied the lex talionis on us, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But what is it that we get instead of retaliation? What we get is grace and mercy from God. Why does God show us love, grace, and mercy? It's because on the cross, justice was satisfied. Jesus took the punishment that we deserved so that we don't get retaliation. We don't get the wrath of God, but what we get is grace and mercy. But Jesus not only experienced the wrath of God, he also experienced the animosity and hatred of men. Now, all of us have enemies to one degree or another in our life, but know this, no one will ever in your life hate you so much that they rip your clothes off and strip you naked and throw dice with the other people that have done it for which article of clothing that they want. That will never happen. You know what also will never happen? No one will ever whip you so hard that your flesh hangs off your bones like an accordion. You know what will also never happen? 
No one will hate you so much that they drive nine-inch nails into your wrists and in the back of your heels. No one will ever hate you so much that they hang you on a cross where you will suffocate slowly for the next six hours. You will never have enemies that hate you as much as, as Jesus' enemies hated him. And yet if he says on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing, who are we to withhold our forgiveness to other people? If God is that lavish and liberal with his love, how can we be so stingy with it when we have the richest of God's, God's love in our life? If God loves the unlovable, so must we. One of the best stories I know of loving the unlovable is from the, uh, Victor Hugo's Les Mis. And if you're not familiar with the story of Les Mis, the main character is a man named Jean Valjean. Jean Valjean steals a small piece of bread for his starving little sister. But the police catch him, and they throw him in prison for the next 19 years of his life. When you spend 19 years of your life in prison, that changes a person. Jean Valjean is angry, he's pissed, he's calloused, he's numb, he can't feel anything anymore. And finally, after 19 years of his life, he's released. But as an ex-convict, he can't find a job, he can't find shelter. The only person that was willing to take him in was a bishop. And to reward the bishop, Jean Valjean wakes up in the middle of the night, goes down into the kitchen, and he steals the bishop's expensive silverware, and he runs off. Unfortunately, Jean Valjean is caught by the police once again, and they drag him back to the bishop's home, and they tell the bishop, this man has stolen your silverware. But to their utter shock, and to his utter shock, the bishop responds by saying, he didn't steal my silverware. I actually gave it to him. And Jean, you actually forgot to take the silver candlesticks as well. And the police are just stunned. And Jean Valjean, his jaw is just down to the ground. He is stunned. And when you read what Victor Hugo writes about how Jean Valjean feels, he says that what the bishop did to him was the harshest assault he had ever felt, the most formidable attack he had ever sustained. Now, why would he say that? Why would he say that this bishop's act of kindness mercy, compassion, was the harshest assault he had ever faced when he just spent 19 years in prison. The reason why Jean Valjean felt that way is because if this bishop showed him love and kindness, he would have to relinquish the 19 years of hate he had felt. And he was pissed, and this was his identity as an angry man. But if he accepted the bishop's uh, grace, he knew he would have to let that go and forgive all those people. That's why he says this. I want to read you a quote because I'm not saying this very well. But if you take a look at the third quote, this is what Jean Valjean says. He says, sweet Jesus, what have I done? Become a thief in the night? Become a dog on the run? Have I fallen so far that nothing remains but the cry of my hate? They gave me a number and chained me and left me for dead just for stealing a mouthful of bread. Yet why did I allow that man, that bishop, to touch my soul and teach me love? He treated me like any other. He gave me his trust. He called me brother. My life he claims for God above, for I had come to hate the world, this world that always hated me. Take an eye for an eye. Turn your heart into stone. This is all I have lived for. This is all I have known. Instead, he offers me freedom. 
He told me that I have a soul. What spirit comes to move my life as I stare into the void, to the whirlpool of my sin? I'll escape now from that world, from the world of Jean Valjean. Jean Valjean is nothing now. Another new story must begin. Now, why is it that Jean Valjean is able to say, another story must begin? It's because Jean Valjean knows and the bishop knows that love is the most transformative power in the world. You don't believe me? Take a look at a child that is raised in an unloving home versus a child that is raised in a loving home, and there you will see the difference. Love is the most transformative power in the world. And what you have to know this morning is that you are loved. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were sinners, while we were at enmity with God, while we were at war with God, Christ died for us anyway. You want to know how much you are loved? The proof is the cross. Otherwise, what is that? if it isn't a demonstration of love. Now, can you think of any other religion in the world where a God would demonstrate that type of love for you, a sacrificial love even to the point of death? You cannot because it doesn't exist, save for one. And that is what Jesus has done for you and for me. When you understand the kind of grace he shows each and every one of us, we have no right to hold bitterness, grudges, anger and hatred toward other people because his love is that transformative. But will you receive that harsh assault of grace in your life? Every night before I put my daughter down to bed at 8 p.m., I hold her on my right shoulder and I sing her a song. And I'm not going to sing, but I, I, sing her, I sing her the song, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. I sing that to her every single night. Because if there is one thing I want my daughter to know is that not only does her earthly father love her, but she is far more loved by her heavenly father who is perfect, who made her and who died for her. And you need to know that this morning as well, that Jesus not only made you, but he died for you and he shows you grace and that releases you to be a person of mercy and grace towards other people as well. Well, I want to close with three applications in less than one minute by MLK once again. And MLK says, what are some practical things that we can do to love? And he says, number one, instead of pointing the finger at the other person, why don't you begin with yourself? Maybe there's a reason why they're antagonistic against you. Maybe there's a something with you that's wrong. Maybe there are some blind spots in your life that you need to check first before you have animosity toward the other person. So hard to do. But one of the most important things to be able to do is to look at yourself in the mirror first and say, maybe I'm the problem. But that requires a bit of humility. Number two, not only look at yourself, but when you take a look at the other person, don't just look for the things that they have done wrong, but perhaps the things they have done right. Instead of looking for the evil, look for the good. And he says, if the good outweighs the evil, maybe that will change your posture towards that other person, that they are not an enemy so much as a friend. But there's a third thing that we must do. And MLK says, when the opportunity presents itself for you to destroy your enemy, for you to wreck them, that is precisely the moment you must not. When your enemy falls and you can be judgmental of them, criticize them, gossip about them, whatever, that is precisely the moment you must not. And you must put an end to this cycle of hatred 
and retaliation. Why? Because that is exactly what Jesus has done for us. And because he has done, for, done that for us, we must be kind to everyone, even those who oppose us. Let's pray together. Lord, this teaching is very hard, um, but it is possible. It's not easy, but it is doable. But it's certainly, not be, it's certainly not able to be done through our sheer will and power, but it can only be done through the transformative power of your grace. And so that, may that be the power, the fuel, the energy, the gasoline that drives us to act this way. In Jesus' name, I pray.